Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Just a friendly warning that there is occasional use of strong language. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, the place where people who have decided to write books come and hang out with us and they bring objects with them. And that's exactly what my next guest has done. I'm Nihal Arthanaika and today I'm joined by a musician who is... Well, look, I'm going to just declare an interest here, right? This is the first band that I fell in love with. I was absolutely obsessed with madness. So to be sitting in front of Suggs right now, about to go through his life and talk about things that have meant to him, is a moment for me. And hopefully you listening to Penguin Podcast, it will be a moment for you as well. Can I go now? <laughs> this is getting a bit emotional. <laughs> It's getting emotional. It's, it's just it's super, like, I can't take it super, super awkward for me. It's so amazing. It literally is so amazing. Okay, I've been going since 1979. 40 years later, I've had 17 UK top 10 hits, won an Ivor Novello Award for Outstanding Song Collection, played on top of Buckingham Palace at 2012 Olympics, and Our House is an Olivier Award winning musical based on their lyrics and music. Sugs from Madness. Hello. Hello. <laughs> I'll try not to talk like that through the whole thing. I'm right, super mate. excited. Um, listen, um, 40 years. Fruit, what was it? Time flies like an arrow. Fruit flies like a banana. If you would. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's horrifying. You know, I mean, I still think of the 80s being 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you're younger than me. But, uh, you know, I think there is a scientific fact about time. The older you get, I mean, when you're one, one year is the entirety of your existence when you're 50 it's 150th and 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 so on and so forth so yeah it, it's it's you know old people tell you that when you're younger but it's true it starts getting faster and faster time we are going to go into time and past specifically in a little bit and look at these objects before we was we that is the name of the book why this format Conversational. So, just from our own uh, mouths, basically, we were just interviewed by Tom Doyle, a, a, a journalist that we like. You know, being the fortieth anniversary, we've been trying to think about things we could do to celebrate that, and 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 one of them was to to, to, to write a book. And Penguin very uh, kindly asked us to do that. But we thought we've had two and a half books already written about the band, and. We were just thinking the chronology and the success and all that has been pretty well documented and. One of the great strengths of this band, for me anyway, was that we were friends before the band started. You know, the, the band was a kind of uh, offshoot of our friendship. So we thought, why don't we explore that a little bit and how we got to know each other and why in the end we became a band, you know, because there was a firmament of about 20 people all hanging about in the same area when I was a kid and it boiled down to the seven of us at the end. And hopefully that's an interesting story. I don't know. I haven't read it myself. I've only read my own bits. <laughs> um, um, what did you learn about the band that you didn't know about? Because it's quite interesting. We have our own histories. Yeah. Okay. And then other people have their own versions of our history. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's part of the interesting... I have read it, by the way. One suggestion was we all sit around in a room together because we all jog each other's memories, you know, and the memories are, you know, very, very personal, aren't they? And subjective. But then we thought actually it'd be more interesting to get everyone's individual. So we all did it on our own. So then Tom compiled it. So, for instance, our first gigs or whatever. And, of course, you've got seven different, completely different opinions of what went on. And I think that gives it a kind of uh, 
kind of fusion, whatever. But no, in that, in that, so so I learned a lot about other members of the band, you know, moments that I thought I was being brilliant and they didn't and vice versa, yeah. Yeah, well, luckily you didn't become Morris no, and they exactly. didn't become the Miners. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Because <laughs> there were a number of The Invaders was another one, wasn't it? So we started out as The Invaders, yeah, and then it turned out there was another band called The Invaders, which was kind of annoying because we were just starting to get somewhere and people knew who we were. And then we turned up at the Music Machine, a venue in Camden Town, to discover that Mike, our keyboard player, had renamed us after the form of transport we were using at the time, which was a Morris Minor van for your younger viewers, with the old GPO vans. And the posters outside had Morris and the Miners on them. I went, what? He said, no, that's, I thought that might work for the band. I went, Mike, I'm, I'm not mad on being Morris. And <laughs> the others aren't too chuffed about being the Miners, neither. So it was that night, actually, it was a neat potful moment when we said, well, we've got to pick another name for the band quick. And so we were looking through the songs that we were playing and Madness sort of popped out. And, uh, and, that, and, that, and that is what happened, yeah. But um, Woody, of course, said that, uh, that they're, because his mum was floor manager at Top of the Pops and there were record company people that were quite interested. But then she told them the name, Madness. No, that was terrifying because we weren't, you know, we got banned off Top of the Pops four or five times for messing about and not miming properly. And um, But the only time we didn't was when Woody's mum was floor managing and we were all on our best behaviour. Yeah, I mean, we were very fortunate because we met the specials very early on. They played at the Hope and Anchor, the pub that we used to hang around in. And we couldn't believe there were other people into the kind of music that we were, into the sort of clothes that we were into. And and watching them was was a real revelation, you know, uh, Neville blowing holes in the ceiling with a starting pistol and gangsters and all that and I got talking to Jerry Dammers who started Two Tone Records and he came round to my mum's flat that night mm. but he said I'm going to start a record label and I'm thinking about trying to do something like English Motown I said that's a smidge optimistic in it Jerry seeing you just played to 35 people in a pub basement but lo and behold six months later or so he'd started the label and that was really the turning point and going back to what you're saying about Top of the Pops so we just did a one-off single on two-tone, which happened to get into the charts. You know, we were, we were barely capable of playing our own instruments at that point, and we're suddenly on top of the pops, and then suddenly everyone's starting to take an interest in the band, big record companies and all that. Um, what led to you all having that vision and imagination? Um, it's been said that you all came from dysfunctional backgrounds and you formed a family where perhaps... Your, your blood families weren't exactly orthodox, shall we say. But, you know, ambition and imagination were part of what you were about. Where did that come from? Well, that's true, yeah. I, mean, I think we, we, we formed a dysfunctional family, just slightly less dysfunctional than our own blood families, as you say. Um, well, one thing I think, you know, like I say, there was probably 10, 20, 30 people at different times hanging about together. Into music was the main thing, but, you know... Petty criminality was on the other sort of side of that coin. And, you know, all of us were slightly anti-authoritarian and certainly hadn't done all that we could at school, for instance. So we weren't very well educated. But no one was stupid, you know. But but half of our crowd started to get very seriously into crime, which was their way of sort of using their imagination. But Mike and some of them and me were into graffiti when that was really first, you know, before... You know, after it was just scrawling your name on the wall, actually doing something vaguely creative. And Mike was great, our keyboard player was. And, and, and I sort of got into that. And, and there was an element of, you know, I mean, it's a cliche, but it's kind of true. You know, from the background we came from, there was black cab driving, boxing, football, 
or, 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 or criminality. And then pop music was the fifth option, and we were really into music. That was what we all shared, the seven of us that actually eventually became Madness. Mike's older brother was a very good keyboard player. He played with Kate Bush and stuff, and his even older brother was Danny Barson, who was in a band called Bazooka Joe, which were a big deal around our way. So there was a kind of idea that, that, that you know, we were messing around for a bit, but Mike started to take it very seriously, and, and so did Chris, our guitarist. And then it, it started to become apparent that it might be possible to make a living out of it. What effect does it have on the psychology when you are living in an area and you're seeing an area where there's so much destruction around you? I thought it was really interesting reading in the book where the scars of the Second World War were still very much around you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was talking about that. Yeah, without going on about the good old bad old days. Yeah, bomb sites and all that. You know, yeah. and you go and play in a bomb site, which have a big puddle and more often than not a burnt out car at the bottom of it. And that, they were our adventure playgrounds, yeah. I mean, London in the 70s was a very, very, very different place, yeah. yeah. Very, very much black and white, as much as I can remember. And, not much um, traffic around, as described in this book. You could no, walk well, places. And... We made a film called Take It or Leave It, which we made in about 1980 or 81, which just about captures the end of that period. And, yeah, you see Lee, our sax player, walking down Parkway, and you're just two cars going past in a matter of 20 minutes. Yeah, life was a lot less colourful. I mean, I think... Life was a lot more compartmentalised, I mean, culturally and I think socially. You know, that was just starting to break with disco and punk and other kind of cultural things that were going on musically. And we just happened to be at that moment. And then with the two-tone thing, it really started to unravel a little bit, you know, and, and, and a bit of... Uh, uh, cross-cultural. Cross-cultural, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, let's go to your first object, yes. which is a map. Oh, yeah. Uh, an overground map of all things. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Let's talk about this overground map. Well, this is the North London line, which is the overground. Um, I don't remember ever thinking about money. And then as someone pointed out to me, because we never paid for anything, including public transport, never paid to go in gigs, never paid to go in the cinema, never paid for sweets in the sweet shop, or indeed trousers in Oxfam. But, yeah, this is the magic line, we used to call it. And um, But basically for us, it's so you're going from Ivory, Caledonia Road, Camden Road, Kentish Town, Gospel Oak, Hampstead Heath. That was our sort of uh, stomping ground. One of the things about that was Mike and Lee used to walk along the lines at night doing graffiti on all the railway stations. And I remember being struck by the fact Mike would do things like trains coming towards you three-dimensionally. And then you'd see on the bridges, you'd see kicks, which was Lee, our saxophone player's tag, in great big letters. You think, but he must have had to stand on a great big ladder to get up there before it was explained to me that Mike held him by his legs upside down from the top of the bridge. But yeah, that was just, you know, that line holds so many memories because we all lived on that line. And also, I was going to school in Finchley Road, which is the next stop after Hampstead. And I used to bunk off that school because it was all boys and go to Hampstead Comprehensive where there were girls and hippie teachers and everyone loved each other. But I was saying the irony of bunking off one school to go and hang about at another didn't hit me for 30 odd years, you know. <laughs> bunking off school to go to school. There was a lot of violence around. Yeah, it was pretty violent. I mean, I don't know, you know, there's a lot of hysteria about knife crime, quite rightly at the moment. I'm, I'm, I do believe it is getting you know, yeah, beyond sort of, mm. you know, what it should be. But there was then, you know, I mean, whether it was less recorded or, or maybe there was less, I don't know. But, you know, you would hear people being stabbed and there were lots of fights, yeah. How did you navigate that? I was kind of funny was one thing. I was kind of big, which was also kind of all right. But the other thing was to hang around with psychopaths, you know. 
You have to have at least one psychopath <laughs> in your true. gang. <laughs> and my hippie Back mates go, what are you doing hanging about with him? Well, because he just gives off a bit of an aura, a bit of a barrier between you and the other mob. Um, but no, again, it was that, you know, and then certain of our friends did become completely psychopathic and that's when you sort of have to think, well, do I want to stay here or, or, or find another way to exist? Mm. Let's move on to another uh, object that we've got now, oh, yeah. and that is um, vinyl, some vinyl. Indeed. Um, and, oh my gosh, let, let, let's, let's talk about how important Prince Buster is to you. There we go, there we go. Vinyl in the sleeve. There we go. Yeah, enormously important. Yeah, it was funny because the sort of crowd we were hanging about with were getting into retro music of all sorts. There was this sort of proto-Teddy Boys were getting into, like, bluegrass. And, all, and everyone was getting more and more obscure. You know, it was like sort of going backwards to find your own thing. Do you know what I mean? At this point, you know, everyone pretty much looked like Kevin Keegan in flares and, and permed hair and moustaches and all that. Not everyone, <laughs> but a vast majority of the people... And we were getting into wearing suits and straight trousers for all that is worth now and short hair and all that. And then also musically. So we were into reggae, you know, Bob Marley suddenly hit the thing, you know, that was the big, when he come on uh, Old Grey Whistle Test doing Concrete Jungle and all that. And then by listening to that, and then you start listening back. And then, of course, you had things like Desmond Decker were in our firmament already. And then the pop reggae records like Uptown Top Ranking, you know, it was just a matter of becoming more kind of... Uh, exclusive by going back and then we went right back to Bluebeat and Scar and Prince Buster just hit like a ton of bricks you know Al Capone which of course was the basis of the special's first single Gangsters and the B-side of that was One Step Beyond which was one of our biggest hits he just had that sort of mixture of, of comedy and, and sort of uh, and toughness you know we talk about it in the book comic malevolence is something mm. that sort of pops up a few times because we love the injury, he had a bit of that, and also Alex Harvey we used to like from Alex and, Harvey. And Tommy Cooper. And Tommy Cooper. <laughs> yeah. A bit of comic malevolence. Yeah, 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 you could sort of see, you know, a slight darker side as well as that humour. What's the word they always say about Scar? It's infectious, that's it, infectious. What, what connected these white boys from North London yeah. to these these guys from Jamaica? Well, I think a number of things. One was that we'd, we all liked smoking marijuana in those days. <laughs> And the only other mob that were smoking marijuana were listening to Pink Floyd and sitting round in rooms with, you know, lampshades over their heads. Yeah, that wasn't for you, was it? No, dancing, you know, and you see all the kids going to reggae clubs, all dancing, you know, having a puff and going dancing. And and, and that bass, the bass lines were something that really accorded with that feeling. You know, we were just doing cover versions when we started, like mostly old rock and roll and 50s R&B, basically stuff that was easy to play. And then we realised that a lot of these old Scar songs were equally pretty simplistic chord-wise. And when we got our first few gigs in pubs, we, we started to find that that music was really going down well with the crowd. You know, post-punk, you know, there was a lot of energy flying around and that music seemed to connect. Were the tribe sugs dismantling at this point? Because you've mentioned in the book that there were some very strict tribes. There was punk and then there was Teddy Boys. Yeah. They very much were like, no, this is us, right? We ain't mixing with them, they're not us. But then, yes, did, yes, sure. was reggae bringing different tribes together? Well, no, certainly music was, you know, and then we were sharing this journey back and then you started getting some sort of crossovers between certainly Fats Domino and some of the early Louisiana R&B to, to the early stuff of, of Scar, you know, which was very similar. So, Where did you know... go to buy it? 
Well, I went to a stall in Berwick Street in Soho, oh, and this right. guy had loads of Blue Beat singles. They were 10 pence each. So, you know, like it was, you'd, you'd, you could afford one a week. Yeah. And I started to collect them. Lee Thompson, our saxophone player, had a really big collection of... Unfortunately, I did some DJing a couple of years ago and someone nicked off on my Blue no. Beat records. Yeah, yeah, really, really sad. But it's just great looking at that label, such a, a sort of iconic label, yeah. When you put that on, I mean, I'm I'm of a slightly later generation, yeah. so so hip hop did that for me. Public Enemy did that for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I would just have to rush home, put it on, <laughs> sit in my room, and I could just be on my own, listen to it for hours. Now I've got a vision. Now you say that. I remember once me, Carl, and a couple of our mates were in the music machine, and we were the only people on the dance floor dancing to a, a Prince Buster record or some sort or other. And I, I have this vision of sort of almost looking down on the three of us going crazy to this music. But was it remember, normal for men to dance then? Was it a, an acceptable thing that you could dance? No, I don't think so. No, I think we sort of had something, some part to play in that. Yeah, but, I mean, there was obviously disco, you know, which was in sort of parallel to what we were doing, you know, where certainly white and black kids were, 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 were mixing together and dancing. The sort of punk generation had all just been leaping up and down, and I think we added a bit more expression to... Yeah. <laughs> To movement. You didn't want anyone not spitting much. on you, did you? Not much. <laughs> no, exactly, and ripping the clothes up. Yeah. I mean, they cost a lot of money, them yeah. things. Yeah, yeah. And th- where does that come from, that sartorial need to be addressed? Is it because, you, you know, when you come from certain environments that have this scruffiness all around you, it's a statement to look sharp? I think, I think so, yeah. You had second-hand shops. There was a great one in Camden Town called Alfred Kemp's, and it was like, they had the most fantastic clothes because all these clothes were still... From the 60s, they were tailor-made suits and crombies with velvet collars and really good shoes, really well-made clothes. So you could buy a really fantastic suit for not much money and um, and really, you know, stand out, basically. Now, I have to say, having done quite a few of these Penguin podcasts so far and people have brought in a whole plethora of different objects, no one <laughs> as yet has brought in teeth. Right. No one as yet has brought in a plaster cast from some Nashes. Plaster cast of North London Nashes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's very obscure, but uh, another of our big breaks was... Um, these belong to D. Crooks, by the way, in case <laughs> he's ever looking for them. He's got his name on the back. Oh. The story is, in those days, there was a bit of room to manoeuvre. You know, you could squat in buildings. You know, there were, there, were, there were buildings you could rehearse in. And one of the places we started rehearsing was, was in the basement of a dentist surgery in Finchley Road. Yeah, surrounded by the plaster cast of North London Nashers. And, uh, yeah, it was just great because we sat up there and they just let us stay for as long as we wanted down there because we'd rehearse in the evening when it was shut. And it was a dentist chair, I remember, that I used to sit in thinking I was king of all I surveyed. <laughs> Why was that space important to you? Well, it was the first time we could set up our equipment and leave it there, you know, and we had a tape recorder and start to... Because up to that point, we were in and out of old youth clubs or people's bedrooms, you know, it was very disparate. So this was the first time we kind of settled down and got some kind of continuity, basically. And that made it feel like a serious job, I guess, for the first time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lyrics and all that on the walls and, and, and as I say, tapes of what we'd done the day before. And we started to really take it seriously at that point. And in fact, and that's when Clive Langer, who ended up producing all our records, came to see us. And that's when things really started to take off. It nearly didn't because you were sacked at one point, weren't you? Yes, yes. Can we talk about why you were sacked? Yeah, nearly. yeah. I mean, at that point, you know, this is just leading up to the dentist surgery. They were starting to rehearse more and more. And I, I was a big football fan. I used to go to Chelsea every Saturday. And 
they started rehearsing on Saturday afternoons and I started running out of excuses for why I wasn't turning up. So, yeah, then suddenly, unfortunately, somebody saw me on Match of the Day. You know, they have the highlights. And there I was in the shed when I was supposed to be at the rehearsals. And Mike sacked me, our keyboard player. Then I saw an advert in Melody Maker with Mike's phone number. Uh, North London band seek professionally minded singer. So I rang him up and I put on a posh accent. I said, hello, I'm just inquiring about the job of singer in your band. Just out of interest, what's happened to the old one? We had to let him go, we had an attitude problem. <laughs> he was always at the football. I said, Mike, you bastard. <laughs> he said, no, Suggs, listen, we could do with you back in the band, actually. I said, oh, yeah. He said, yeah. I said, doing what? He said, playing drums. I said, playing drums? What's happened to John? He said, oh, he's auditioning for singer. I said, you can go fuck yourself. The next thing, there I am, playing drums in Mike's bedroom, very badly. But fortunately, John, who was the drummer, John Asler, who features quite a lot, and then he became the manager, became the singer briefly, but then he went off to Ireland for a few weeks, and it turned out I was the only one who knew the words. So I was back in the band, which was a very big moment for me. Um, one thing that really surprised me in the book was how Cathal, a.k.a. Chair Smash, was really, really insecure. Yeah. And, and obviously, me being a fan of Madness... yeah. That would be the last thing I was thinking that any of you could have had some insecurity issues. Yeah, well, I think, you know, that's part of what you said. I mean, it was a pretty crazy time. And, you know, I think all of us, to a greater or a lesser extent, created a kind of character that was a defence against all that craziness, you know. And, and, and Carl, for sure, created Chaz Smash. I created Suggs. Mike was Mr B, Lee was Kicks. Mm. You know, we created these uh, alter egos, partly to sort of be bigger, bolder and larger than life. And it was a kind of defence mechanism to a, to a certain extent. How difficult was it to keep being Suggs? Because, of course, if it isn't, if it's that supercharged version of you, it, it will be draining if you're having to do it all the time. Yeah, sure, sure. No, but I mean, for me, it was slightly different in that I'd already done that when I was about 13 or 14 because I'd had to go and live in Wales with my aunt for a few years because my mum couldn't kind of cope. And I came back to London with a slightly Welsh accent, with a Scottish name, in a predominantly West Indian and Irish school in the Finchley Road for the psychopaths. And I just decided that I wasn't going to be Graham Jock Haggis Fleabag McPherson anymore and decided to call myself Suggs. So I'd already kind of assumed that alter ego. So by the time the band came along, I was kind of sucks by then. You know, the two things had melded. So it was hard to remember who Graham was anymore. So it wasn't an issue. I just was Suggs. And then I became a pop star called Suggs, if you see what I mean, rather than the other way around. So what's what's of the Graham that's still left? (laughs) Or has Suggs overtaken the Graham completely? Sweet boy holding mummy's hand and something went wrong. And I'm not to blame, but something went wrong. Um, yeah, of course I still know that little boy, you know, and he was a pretty lonely little kid. And, yeah, you know, I'm still Graham. But, like I say, it's not an affectation, Suggs. It just became me and, you know, Graham and Suggs became one sort of thing. Mm. I wonder how different it was for Chaz, Cathal. Because he said, you know, I put these sunglasses on and it was... He, he said he couldn't even look at the audience, yeah. right? And, 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 you know, for me, like I said, as a fan, I'm looking at madness and I'm just thinking, this is the. Yeah, but it's, you know, it's a double edged sword, you know, because it doesn't alter the fact that we were a gang, you know, really outgoing and having the time of our lives, you know. 
you know, it's not just all happy-go-lucky. There are no. deeper things going on. But it's funny when people say to me, do you still enjoy doing the gigs? And I think I enjoy them more now because the same, you know, for me, the first few years were just a blur of arms and legs and sweat and pork pie hats flying in the air and people getting punched, you know. And now when I look at the audience, <laughs> lovely, lovely audiences, young people enjoying themselves, holding hands, kissing, smiling and waving and looking so fine. Now I actually appreciate them now, you know, and... Yeah, it's just, it's hard to, you know, extrapolate what you felt like then. I mean, that's what the book tries to do. And as you say, you know, people have been pretty candid, like Carl. Mm. You wouldn't expect maybe to say those kind of things. But yeah, I mean, to be a rounded human being, you can't be a laughing buffoon all the time sort of thing. No, absolutely not. Even um, though I am. <laughs> it's hardly. Let's look at a pub, shall we, now? Okay. Let's look at the sign for a pub. This oh, is yes. your object. Yes. Tell us tell us about this pub, the name of it and its significance in your life. Well, the Dublin Castle in Camden Town, and legend has it that, well, there were 70,000 migrant workmen in the 19th century building, well, the canal, where the canal met the railway. You know, Camden Town was the industrial hub of England at that point. And to keep all the migrant workmen, there were Scottish, Irish and Welsh and English, apart, they built four pubs, the Edinburgh Castle, the Carnarvon Castle, the Windsor Castle and the Dublin Castle. And for obvious reasons, the Irish went to the Dublin Castle. <laughs> but no, we were just wandering the streets trying to get gigs, you know, when we could hardly play. But there were so many pubs, and again, this was one of the great joys of that period, there were probably 20 pubs, most of them Irish, because they had function rooms for christenings and, and, and whatever weddings and also they'd, they'd have you know a bit of Irish music every now and then so we just turned up at the Dublin Castle pretty much at our wits end the mock Tudor portals and uh, Allo who used to be the governor said what's your act then lads and we decided to say country and western because we thought it might go down a bit better with an Irish crowd and uh, and when seven skinny teenagers started leaping about playing Jamaican scar the Irish regulars were somewhat bemused but we sold a few pints, and that's all really Allo cared about. And we got a residency there. So that was our really first big break. Um, and it's still going to Dublin. And Henry is Allo's son, who passed away a few years ago, unfortunately. And we're still very close to him and his pub. And, uh, yeah, just having a residency meant you could start to build up some kind of following, and people knew where to find you. And eventually we got queues around the block, and then record companies started to turn up. So it was a very important moment in our lives. Is this where you kind of really learned... The art of being in a band, in the sense that you get to do it regularly and in a place, is, is kind of like the Beatles in Hamburg. You're actually getting to do it, road miles. Someone I was talking to today was saying, yeah, but equally today it's, it's online. You know, you can build up a following online. But that, I think, is the difference. You don't get the opportunity to be booed and, and build up some kind of uh, protection for yourself against the slings and arrows that will come along the way any better than by playing in pubs once or twice a week for, for, for two, two or so years, which we did. Yeah, I think, and you learn a lot about what it is to perform, for sure. What does it mean to you decades later to walk out on a stage like the Reading Festival <laughs> and see thousands and thousands of people, most of whom weren't even born when, no. you, when you started, no, no, no. going absolutely mad to the music that you make? No, I mean, I've seen some sites. I remember one time there was four generations of the same family, yeah. No, it's a, it's a privilege. Of course it is, yeah, because it wasn't that long ago. I mean, when we came back in 1992, we'd been away for about six years, and we didn't really know 
And it was the beginning of this kind of what they called the 80s nostalgia. There were lots of big package tours with Toyo and, I don't know, Tapao or something, whoever. We were sort of being sucked towards that. I'm not saying it's a black hole. Good luck to anyone who makes a living out of this business. But we very determinedly made an album called uh, The Liberty of Norton Folgate, which was a kind of like the Warp Factor 6 that got us away from that and re-established ourselves as a band that, that, that are, you know, not current, but, but present. But you, you're still so good live. One thing that I've, I've always wanted to ask you was, at one point, we, we, I tried to come to one of your gigs in Finsbury Park and there were loads of horrible skinheads outside, right? Yeah. And, and, and in the end, I didn't end up going because there was anti-racist guys and skinheads. were in fact, and, and knowing what I know about you, I just wonder how saddening it was that those scumbags, these racist scumbags, thought that they had an affinity with madness. I mean, fortunately, it seems to have gone, yeah, it's gone completely, there. Yeah. 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 But 1992, yeah, you're right. And I, I remember a load of coach loads came from Leeds or somewhere, not not necessarily saying Leeds is any more racist than anywhere else. Mm. But yeah, you saw them all tumbling off. Like, oh, God, I thought they'd gone a long time ago. They were in some sort of reunion, you know. <laughs> Not on our, you know, in our, you know, I mean, at our expense. Yeah, no, it's horrible. I mean, they totally but, misunderstood the roots of the band, the, the ideology of the band, the philosophy of the and band. That's what's the music. double frustrating. So they've just got blinkers on. No, I'm not, I'm not. I'm not listening. I'm not listening. No, no, no. I'm not listening. I'm a racist. I'm not listening. <laughs> what are you doing here? <laughs> yeah. But no, I mean, in the late seventies, I mean, it was completely and utterly out of hand for a couple of years. You know, even even the specials were getting it. Do you know what I mean? Just how bizarre! Bizarre. I think it's always there, isn't it? As you well know. I mean, it yeah. may have gone underground, well, it but it's still floating again. about there. Yeah, 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 they're still out there for sure. But fortunately, they seem to have given up. Uh, you know, having any sort of idea that we might be something they like. How potentially terrifying was it? The atmosphere at gigs, you know, in the well, late seventies, yeah, in the late seventies. Well, I remember we 80s. played Electric Born once, and like two thirds of the audience was Zig Heiling. I mean, can you imagine such wow. a thing? You know, so me and Carl took it upon ourselves to jump in the audience and have a word, for better <laughs> or for worse, and it was indeed worse. <laughs> Words were not being heeded. That that's a wow. Yeah, what, yeah. What, yeah, I mean, you know, we, we took it seriously. And then we got in a lot of, you know, I remember once in New Zealand, we had a load turn up in a record shop and Carl had a huge fight with these, you know, whatever they're called, white supremacists. <laughs> people would presume that because they were all turning up at our gigs. The specials obviously had black people in their band. So eventually, you know, it was too apparent that they weren't into that sort of thing. But eventually it became apparent, I think, to the majority of the uh, public, that we weren't either. No. Well, look, there's a brilliant bit in the book where some of the shenanigans of a, a tour you did with Two-Tone in the late 70s. Uh, let's have a listen to that part of the audio book now. That was the greatest time of my life, the Two-Tone tour. The most tremendous, incredible time. We were going round the country every day our tour manager would be getting off at a service station, calling the venue, and the promoter would be going, look, there's a riot going on outside, and it's four hours before the gig. I'm going to have to try and find a bigger venue. Literally anything and everything could happen. Stage invasions, stages collapsing, the Burlington Mods versus the Bridlington Skins, and a bit of NF thrown in. Every night was just chaos. The bands themselves fighting with each other, sometimes backstage. They were rough times. It was this raw energy flying around. The amount of times you had to jump off stage and break up fights in the audience and all that. You thought it was the way it was. My wife was in deaf school and I used to go on the road with them thinking, fucking hell, can it just be playing music at gigs with people not throwing bottles at you? Normally what would happen is the whole crowd would start clapping 
and that would be a way to get the idiots out of the building. The bouncers would come in and try and throw them out. But in general, because we were packing them in every night, it was great. We all used to come out at the end of the gig and we'd all be dancing on the stage and half the audience would come up on stage as well. Jerry Dam has always invited a stage invasion. It was obviously part of his sort of socialist philosophy, getting all the punters on stage. Why shouldn't they be on stage? There is no stage. There is no barrier. So it was all good fun. That was Before We Was We by Madness. There we heard uh, my guests Suggs, Mark Bedford and Mike Barson. And just a reminder to subscribe to the Penguin Podcast so you don't miss us twice a month. You can find us at sites like Apple Podcasts or Spotify via uh, a podcast app or on your Alexa-enabled device. Suggs, it's been like an absolute pleasure, I can't tell you, just to hang out with you. And I think I've held it together quite well. <laughs> if I'm honest. You've done a good job, I'm feeling it, I'm feeling it. Um, what do you want people to understand about madness from this book? Because you've all got together, and, you, and like I said, you know, there's so much honesty in it and quite a bit of darkness in it as well. There's lots of light in it. What do you want them to come away from as they close that book after reading that final page, thinking about that band you were in and are still in? Tolerance and kindness is the life we're in today. God, we need more of that. <laughs> do we do? We do. Yeah, I don't know. Just being a human being, you know, and the ups and downs of that they're in. You know, I get often asked, you know, why we're still going. And that's the primary reason is that we were friends and... By being friends, you have to be tolerant, and and that's what kept us going. You know, I've seen enough of my contemporaries go by the wayside for, you know, money or ego or whatever, and um, we always had a lot of tolerance for each other, which you have to with this lot. Blimey, tell me. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. It's, well, look, considering the backgrounds you come from, there are a whole lot of issues there. Every time yeah, you get exactly. in a tour bus, I can imagine back in, and it wouldn't have been a tour bus; it would have been a horrible little van, wouldn't it? No, it's yeah. <laughs> It's mass therapy every time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Sugs, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank for you. Hanging out. Cheers. You're man. welcome, mate. Also available to listen to as an audiobook now is The Beautiful Ones by Prince, the brilliant story of one of the greatest artists of all time in his own words. Featuring the exquisite memoir he began writing before his tragic death, the audiobook is framed by editor Dan Pippenbring's riveting account of his collaboration with Prince during his final months. One. My mother's eyes. That's the first thing I can remember. You know how you can tell when someone is smiling just by looking in their eyes? That was my mother's eyes. Sometimes she would squint them like she was about to tell you a secret. I found out later my mother had a lot of secrets. My father's piano. That's the first thing I remember hearing. As a younger man, his playing was very busy but fluid. It was a joyous sound. This work is not just a tribute to an icon, but an original and energising literary work in its own right, full of Prince's ideas and vision, his voice and image, his undying gift to the world. <laughs> 